And hey, we're in chapter 13. Can anybody guess the title of it as I put a square around it? Man, you guys are really getting into it now. It took us four times, but we got it, Jeanette. That's right. We're Sunrise Baptist Church. Hey, uh, we've already seen that, uh, the issue with the role of the woman, wife, and mother. And that's the issue just the way it was with the man, with the husband, and the father. Okay, was what's the problem? How do you do it? What makes for a godly man? And again, as we finish this one up, Lord willing, was it make for a godly woman? The problem is, instead of listening to God's word, instead of the spirit of God, we listen to society. And society, especially on this aspect of womanhood, is really messed up with uh, the issue of feminism. Okay, and if that wasn't bad enough then we listen to self we don't listen to the savior as if jesus doesn't know the best way for us to live as husbands and wives and families and whatever okay because that's really what's going on that's the problem we saw in the first study we said well okay then what is a christian character of a woman uh in that aspect we saw well that needs to be just like with the guy needs to have a characteristic of godliness is what's going on there. Uh, also need to have a concern uh, as a godly woman for your family. Uh, you need to possess this uh, thing that is precious in the sight of God, the scripture says, and a treasure to your husband. And that is a gentle and quiet spirit. And then we saw, well, why is that important? Not just for you, but also for society. Because again, that's how we lead the way back. Our family's being destroyed today. Yes. Yeah, our uh, husbands and wives confused on the roles and who does what. And Yeah, our kids suffering as a result. Okay, is family under attack? Yeah, and it comes down to, we don't know what does it uh, mean to be, a go- even in the church, a godly biblical man, a godly biblical woman. Okay, but again, if we want our society that not just Christian households, but all households, all families, marriages are crumbling around us, God's way is how to get back. That's it. It's not going to come through a political endeavor. It's not going to come by just throwing more cash at it, or let's buy them computers, that fixes everything. No, <laughs> if you want to get the family back intact, you got to do it God's way. Hello, and the church needs to lead the way back. Amen? That's the premise. Okay, then we saw, well, what's the role of the woman in the family? That's where we talked last time with the role of the woman as the wife. And as the wife, God calls you to do two things. You need to subject and you need to respect uh, your husband as the spiritual leader of the home. Okay, is what we talked about in great detail last time. Now, we're going to take a look at the role of the, uh, uh, the, the wife here. Okay, as the mother, okay, if you got little uh, crumb snatchers, uh, linoleum lizards, uh, I believe that somebody else said, I like that one. Uh, and uh, let's take a look at that. At the 172 is where we're at, page 172, let's take a look. As was stated above, the Christian wife's greatest contribution to society is to love her husband through maintaining the home. Is your next blank there? Maintain the home. And this especially through nurturing and rearing godly children. Now, this is where we left off last time. I just think about it. That's a mouthful right there. Let's, 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 uh, let's reinvestigate that. Uh, what, what does society say? The Christian wife's greatest contribution. Let's even pare it down. The, the woman's greatest contribution to society is to? Well, that's the right answer. We're looking for society. I mean, what, what is the message our world is cramming down the ladies' brains today? Your greatest contribution. Independence, right? It's all about me, right? And, and, and it's, we, when we talk about that, as we left off last time, independence and self and self-assertion and you got to be like the man, you got to be better than the man, you got to, you know, uh, get away, you know, who cares about the kid? You got to go out there and you got to prove yourself. And what does the scripture say though? What is the fruit of that? Uh, I, I've dealt with counseling of many ladies in my office with tears in their eyes that they bought into that lie feminism. And now they're into their late 30s. Now they're into their 40s. And, 
And half their life uh, is gone. And they wasted on the stuff. And inside, they just, you know, it's all messed up. They spent so much time doing it the wrong way. But you can't get that back. And God says, listen, that's not, ladies, you want to make a greatest, as we saw with men. We dealt with men just as many times, okay, four times. The guys got it. And we need to be those spiritual leaders of the home. We need to be those loving servants. We need to be those faithful, godly men. We need to be those guys who show that, yes, we are worthy of respect, as the scripture says. Okay, and that we will lead our families in a godly fashion, not just in a selfish fashion. But it says, ladies, your greatest contribution, if you want to make a difference in our world today, if you want to help turn this country around, any country around, the town around, your, your neighborhood around, then get busy loving your husband, maintaining the home, and being a part of rearing the next godly generation. Turn this thing around one generation at a time. You are given that wonderful privilege of being a part of that process. Why would you want to give that up? Okay, and that's what he says there. And he says this, now in fact, it's uh, for this that God specifically, especially designed the woman, God's original design for the woman was that she be a suitable helper, okay, for the man, the helper for the man. Uh, She was not the head, he's the head, she's the helper. Okay, thus when the man allowed the woman to usurp his headship in the garden, part of the curse on her involved uh, the biological aspect for which God created her, and that's where she got the curse of the uh, pain of the child uh, bearing. Okay, now, Paul's instructions to Timothy regarding public worship. Pay attention. Here's where we're going to get into this aspect. First Timothy chapter 2. And he prohibits women from teaching or exercising authority over men during the worship service. And we'll be, to give you the context here, like your main Sunday service, like when I'm up here uh, as the pastor preaching and proclaiming and declaring a doctrine. Okay, that's what he's talking about here. Paul gives two reasons for this prohibition. Let me translate that for you. We talked about this before. I know it's popular today with the influx of feminism in certain denominations, but I'm sorry, the Bible does not condone women pastors. That is a role that is fulfilled for men as the spiritual leader. Not only is a home, you're supposed to be the spiritual leader of the church. The primary role for that is to be male headship. That's what he's talking about here. He gives two reasons for this a prohibition. Okay, 1 Corinthians 14. He points out his theology was drawn from the creation account. Is your first point there. Creation account. The reason why that's important is because the creation account began page what? Rhymes with one. Yes, okay. Again, what that tells you, this is the, the order that was established at the very beginning. And what that does, you need to understand that because when people hear about this, they want to say, oh, that's just a cultural thing. So that doesn't apply to today. Uh-uh. It was from the very beginning at creation. Sorry, nice try, but it doesn't work. It's God's pattern throughout all generations, okay, is the point there. And that's what Paul says. Just as the law also says, the law here refers to the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's here in the creation account of Genesis that Paul draws his theology on male headship, which he's applying in this passage. Here he expands on that reasoning. His first reason is the creation order. It's your next blank there, order. It was Adam that was first creative, then who? Eve. This is the text we're going to discuss uh, later in a little bit. The literal rendering is, and Adam was not deceived or misled, but the woman having been completely deceived has come to be in transgression and remain there. Now this is Paul underlying that second reason. Creation account, creation order that's got, whether society likes it, bucks at it, kicks at it or not, that's God's design. Man is to be the spiritual leader of the home. Man is to be the spiritual leader of the home of God's family called the church. Okay, that's that's the way it's always been. Society bucks at it. But he says, here's his second reason for that. Okay, not just the creation order. For a woman not to teach or exercise authority in the local church. And and again, we'll break that down. 
Although many commentators avert making a judgment on Paul's thinking regarding this second reason, the only conclusion that can be drawn is that the woman, because of the way she was created for her role, is more easily deceived. Is your blank there? More easily deceived. He'll talk about this a little bit, but doesn't really necessarily fill in the blank. Let me give you the crone opinion on this. And I think I, to me, I, when you look at, we've talked before the differences between men and women. Why uh, would men... Uh, be called to be the spiritual leadership. Uh, how, how does this, uh, does that mean that ladies are always going to be deceived? No, it's just there's a certain makeup that uh, is a, uh, it's a positive in another sense, as we'll see in a little bit, but in a, when it comes to uh, 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 theology and truth and certainly times of crises, it can become a detriment. And that detriment is, as we saw before, even in our marriage study a couple weeks ago, uh, the very first one, men and women are different. As we saw that women, you in general, are much more emotional in nature. Guys, we are less emotional in nature. Remember that? And we saw that works great in the nurturing aspect, the, the more emotions. It works great with the kids and us guys. Sometimes we can be cold-hearted, but your kids need the hug. And, and that work, that's the positive side with that. But when it comes to times of crises and when it comes to discerning sometimes truth, especially when it's hard truth like this, like, hey, guess what? Did you know there is such a place called hell? Did you know that God has something called his wrath and he is so upset? The Greek word orge is just, ah, for seven years, he's going to pour it out on this planet. Now, if you think about that emotionally first, here's your temptation, well, maybe that's not really what it means. Because emotionally, that, that, that's kind of shock. Whereas a guy, less emotional, is going, oh, that's the way it is. You see what I'm saying? And we talked about this before, this, this nature. Uh, uh, is, and not only, I would say, with uh, the teaching aspect, especially when you come to these kind of truths, where you, uh, men aren't as tempted uh, to divert off to that. Okay, because we're not really thinking about it emotionally. We'll talk about this Lord willing on Sunday, and that's that firing order uh, aspect. Ladies, you feel first, you act, then you think. Uh, guys, we think first, then we act, then we feel. Again, we'll talk about that in our marriage study on Sunday. Oh, wow. And hopefully the videos work this time. There's some good ones. Uh, anyway, uh, but this feeling, because when you encounter something, you immediately go to the emotions. Which again is good in the home, but in these arenas as leadership, it's not always good. Let me show you a couple quick examples. I shared with you before, uh, the, one of the first times I learned this was when we got our first child, Sammy. That's our wiener dog. He was our first child, you know. So he really was. I, or I know Brandy resists, but my first son, Ron. Still kicking, man. Sammy, 14 years later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And so, and so we brought him home, right, ready up, and he's, of course, riding in the car. That's our baby, right? Little baby Sammy, little wiener dog. And so I go up there, I get out of the door, and Sammy's over there, and Brandy, she's getting on the passenger side of the door, and we had a double-wide trailer, and I went up the steps, and I'm, I'm sitting here like this, and she's over here in the carport, and I'm unlocking the door, and all of a sudden I hear, you know, a yelp, and I look over, and Sammy's on the driveway, and he's like flopping like this, and then Brandy's going, running down the carport, took a right turn, heading down the cul-de-sac, screaming. <laughs> right? And so I'm a guy. What do I do? No, at least I go. I, I'm you know, not as emotional. I'm not saying guys don't have no emotion, but I'm looking, I'm going, all right, dog must have got head squished in the door. That's what she did. She closed his head in the door. She thought she, she, thought she killed him. Right? Our son, our son, right? So now you know her reaction, right? What we think first, so I'm thinking, okay, dog, I'm developing a plan. Dog is twitching, but I think he'll be okay. I don't see blood. 
And so I'm going, step two, wife screaming down the street, don't let her get hit by a car. So I go chasing after Brandy, right? <laughs> Honey, stop, stop. I hope the neighbors weren't looking. I still to this day don't know, right? And so that really happened. So it got her calmed down. I killed Sammy, I killed Sammy, I killed Sammy. He's fine, he's fine, he's fine, right? So whatever. So I don't think he's ever heard right uh, out of that left ear, but no. But uh, uh, anyway, so there's that one, okay? Now, that we just about that. Now, when it comes to nurturing, that's, that's great. Ladies, you excel in that. Whereas guys, we can be cold and we don't meet that nurturing needs. But in times of crises, okay, you, you're feeling first. And I think this is, what, this is what I'm trying to fill in the blank for you here. She was more easily deceived. Why? Because your nature is you have a tendency to go with your emotions, And when it comes to biblical truth and it comes to doctrine, when it comes to teachings that aren't popular or don't necessarily give us the googly googly wonderful feelings, you might be tempted to go in a different direction. But men in general, that's not a big issue for us. So it adds to that credence, creation order, uh, as well as uh, this aspect uh, that uh, we don't lead as much by the emotion, okay? So that's kind of the order. Paul then uh, mentions the positive role that the woman holds in the Christian community. And he states, saved however she shall be through childbearing if they continue uh, in faith and love, sanctity together with self-restraint. Now, again, he says this is a difficult verse. I don't think so once you start to tear into it. He says, but if you take into account the immediate context of this passage of presenting the woman in the negative light, i.e. we just saw that she was completely deceived. It literally says there, okay. Paul's now pointing out the positive aspect. So this is actually a positive thing he's bringing up. It's not a negative thing. And once again, feminism will, will jump on this out of context. It will see that means that she has to stay home and just bear kids and that's her whole life and she can't ever do that. No- that's not at all what he's saying. This is a, actually a positive statement from a Paul. Okay, he followed the negative now with a positive of her staying within her God-given role of childbearing and nurturing. Linsky, he writes this, he's a commentary. He says, childbearing includes the rearing of the children, which means Christian rearing to every Christian woman. Paul has in mind what we read in his other letter, the Christian family and home, the mother surrounded by her children, happy in these outlets for her love and affection in this enrichment for herself and for them. By way of childbearing, speaks of the highest ideal of Christian and even secular womanhood. Nothing shall erase or even dim that for us. The subject is the woman, which includes also women of all ages, girls before maturity, women who may never marry, uh, those who are married but remain childless. God's providence in individual lives in no way destroys his creative purpose. That's a mouthful. Let's see if we can translate what's going on there. A paraphrase, but woman's role in society is preserved through the bearing and rearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. What's he saying? Basically, lady, on the negative sense, unfortunately in the past, and unfortunately with this emotional nature, uh, you're not called to be that male headship in the home or even in the church because of the emotional makeup and the creation order, okay? But here's your positive way to make a difference in society. That's guy's positive way. Your positive way is to be that nurturing element in the home. To help prepare the next generation. Why is that a bad thing? That's what he's saying. That's just the verbiage that he's using there. He's saying if you want to make a difference in society, you want to be that, what was the question? Your greatest contribution. Then be that godly woman who supports and uh, uh, respects your husband and encourage him as that spiritual leader and get busy reshaping your children to be a godly next generation and turn this baby around. That's what he's saying. 
okay, in the context. And again, the same thing, you could, you could even paraphrase it. And men, uh, 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 a man's role in society is preserved by being that godly spiritual leader, being that loving, ser- you see what I'm saying? It's the same thing. But again, unfortunately, feminism, once again, takes it out of context, tries to make it into something it's not, and ruins the whole thing. Uh, it says this, Paul's point is that the godly woman, instead of usurping the authority of the man, should be exercising her God-given role. He needs to fulfill his God-given role as that godly spiritual leader. She needs to fulfill her godly uh, given role as being that support system, okay? Uh, as we saw before. This role is affirmed in several passages that we've already touched upon. One's uh, Titus 2, 4, 5. That they may encourage the young women to what? Love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, to be pure, to be workers at home, kind and subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Now, how would the word of God be dishonored if ladies, Christian ladies, did not do that? Yeah, you really want, you know what it boils down to? We've talked about this before. We're really, in essence, even as Christians, what we're saying is, I know this is what God says, but God really doesn't know what he's saying. And my way, or society's way, is better than God's way. That's the message we're sending to the world. Did you realize that? Hey, listen, I know maybe we've been brainwashed by our society to do it the feminazi way, to use the verbiage that society will use, okay? And the same thing with the guys. You know, guys can be lazy and check out and be a couch potato, Okay, but when we don't fulfill these roles, men or women, really what we're saying is our way, listen, even society's way is better than God's way. Come to Jesus. He's awesome. Follow him. He knows the way. His way is the best way. And we don't do it. Even when it comes, he knows everything. He's the one that created us. He's the one that gave us marriage and families. I think his way. Don't dishonor that. And we dishonor it by not doing it. Okay, uh, he says this, here the older women are encouraged to teach the younger women and encourage them along with many other things to be workers at home. The Greek noun literally means workers at home or domestic word. The verb form means to fulfill one's household duties. Again, the emphasis is that the woman's primary responsibilities lie within the home. She is to love her husband. All right, love her children. Next blank there. And she's to carry out these responsibilities at home. The phrase, be workers at home, should not only emphasize she's to be at home primarily, but also that she is to work at home. In other words, she's not to be a Peg Bundy. If you remember that show, which I'm not recommending, uh, but back in the day, uh, what kind of a woman she was at home. Bonbons and that and never, okay? That's not what God says, uh, yeah, you're home, so there you go, you fulfilled your duty. No. Okay, he says, uh, he says, not to be lazy, filling her hours with TV, neglecting the care and instruction of her children. Uh, and additional passages uh, add support to the teaching that the primary responsibilities of managing the home, is your next blank there, managing the home, is assigned to the woman. Now, balance it out though, okay? Lest the husband think this means he has zero responsibility in the managing of the home. That's not true. We need to only look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. In fact, let's go ahead and turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, guys, we're supposed to be involved in the process too, okay? Scripture is very clear about that. We've seen it before, but let's just uh, grab it again in the context. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, let's just start with uh, verse 1. It's talking about the leadership, uh, deacons, okay? Notice that they're elders, deacons, elders are pastors, okay? A pastor is an elder, okay? 
and, uh, but uh, uh, deacons and uh, elders. And again, so he's talking about, again, men, male headship. But here's what he says. Here's a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart, verse 1, on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach. Okay, remember, we, we dealt with this in great detail four weeks in a row. If you guys were here, men, here's what we're supposed to do. Here's our qualifications. Here are, here's our standard. We're to live a life that is above reproach. Uh, the husband of uh, but one wife, literally meaning that you are a one-woman man. Okay, you need to be temperate. You need to be self-controlled. You need to be respectable. You need to be hospitable. You need to be able to teach. You need to be not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Listen, he must manage his own what? Family what? Well, and see to it that his children what? Obey him with proper respect. Why? Because again, you're talking about male leadership in the church. He says, listen, if anybody doesn't know how to manage your own family, how in the world are you going to take care of God's church? If you can't even demonstrate that you can't even be a spiritual leader, a positive spiritual leader in your own home, what in the world do you think we're going to cut you loose in the church? With the family of God. With a whole bunch of more kids. Uh, Right? You don't just have two, there's 200 kids running around at various ages and stages. Right? That's what he's talking about there. So men, that doesn't mean that that we we don't have any involvement in that. And that's what he says there. He says, since the man is the head of the home, he's got tremendous responsibilities, as we discussed in the last chapter. In fact, a husband who bears the primary responsibility in a child's discipline, okay, we're to be that disciplinary and, and instruction as well. Especially, hello, the biblical instruction, okay? It takes, it says there at the very end there, it takes a husband and wife. Can I translate that for you? Listen, this is what God says, man, if you will just do this, I think I know what I'm doing. I created you. His way is the best way. Don't dishonor God's truth. Just do it. Ladies, you just do this part. As we saw before, again, the analogy. Men, you just do the peanut butter thing. Ladies, you just do the jelly thing. And if you work together, bang, you come up with something even better than two of you individually doing it. Okay, and that's what he's saying there. It takes a husband and wife doing it God's way. In other words, it takes a team, right? And we saw before, several weeks in a row. It just says in the team, there's different functions. One person's got to be the quarterback. One person's got to be the center. But you need them both. Yeah, they're different, but they're equally important. They're just different, so what? But if everybody works together, hey, you can actually get somewhere and accomplish something. Okay? But the thing is, if you want to make a difference and you want to have that godly family, do it God's way. So it takes a team, a husband and wife, a team who are spirit-filled, okay, and working together to manage a home and to produce godly offspring who will influence the next generation for Christ. Again, that's the goal. If God has blessed you with children and God says children are a blessing and blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them babies, okay, literally, pun intended, okay, uh, then, then he gives you that entrusted ability that here's your, guess what? Yeah, you got to get out there and you got to earn some bacon because that comes in handy with some bacon, buying bacon, candy and bacon. Bacon buddy, I'll give you a golf clap. Thank you, I see you over there. Okay, and, uh, but guess what? That's your primary role with kids is not just taking care of them, not making sure they just got some clothes and they're, you know, but it, it is to, you are, you are given the, the awesome ministry of shaping them in a biblical fashion to be change agents, to be revolutionaries for the next generation for Jesus Christ. That's our mindset. That's what it's supposed to be every day we get up. How am I making a difference working together as peanut butter and jelly as a team, God's team, 
to prepare these young crumb snatchers to get out there and be rebels for Jesus, to turn this baby around. Now that would change a lot of our actions during the day, wouldn't it? Now can I tell you something? The reason why our society is going down the tubes so fast, partly, is because the family's going down the tubes. And the reason why the family's going down the tubes, okay, is because men are not being biblical men, ladies are not being biblical women, which means the children are growing up now in how many, three generations in a row now? Without any biblical guidance, which means it's not being done God's way, and we're bearing the fruit of that. We're reaping what we sow. And I'm telling you, it drives right back down to this core issue, this creation account, page one. Get back to being a biblical man and being a biblical woman and things can turn around. But we haven't been doing it for three generations now and we're in a heap of trouble. Now, let's take a look as we close, hopefully, on the issue. That's of in the home, in the marriage, the wife, the mother. What is your role, ladies, biblically in the church? Let's take a look at that. Several passages deal with that in the church. Uh, and 1 Timothy 2 deals with that. We previously discussed and uh, talks about a prohibition placed on women in public worship. Uh, meaning like with the, the, the Sunday uh, portion, okay? So let's take a look at that. Paul's instructions to Timothy regarding public worship. Uh, he prohibits women from teaching. That's your first blank there. Or exercising authority is your next blank there. Over men during the worship service. Again, the context of what he's talking about there. Sorry, I know society wants to push this, but uh, no female pastor. Sorry. You can kick at it all you want, but if you want God's blessing, you want to do it his way, has nothing to do with being sexist or whatever. It's just, here's God, just let the guy do the peanut butter, let her do the jelly. That's just one thing that woman that you're, you're not, God doesn't want you to do. Doesn't mean that you couldn't do it, necessarily so, but that's not what he's called you to do. Okay, do it his way, be blessed. Okay, that's what he's talking about, okay? Now listen, he says, remember, Paul's just dealt with the proper adornment in this context of a Christian woman making a claim to godliness. And that's what we saw before. Listen, ladies, you want to impress God? The Greek word, I believe there is cosmetical, where we get cosmetics. And he's talking about makeup. He says, you want to, you want to, you want to impress God with some good-looking makeup? You want to impress him with some good looks? Then don't just be concerned about the external, all the braided hair and the gold and all the fashions. He says, I want to see that makeup on the inside of you. You be that, you, 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 you take the time, as much time as you put on that external makeup every day, how about working on the internal makeup of your heart and being that godly woman? That's what he's talking about. He, that's what he says. He says, now he notes that her inner attitude should manifest itself through quietly receiving instruction with entire submissiveness, okay? But what does he mean by the term teach here? <laughs> Moo writes... <laughs> You know, Ron, we all, I don't know if you guys have ever done this. You go like, when I get to heaven, you know what I'm saying? I want to, I want to, after Jesus, of course, number one, I, I can't wait to talk to Adam. What was it like? I can't wait to see Noah, dude, what was it like on that boat? Or Abraham and all the stuff that he went through? Or Paul and all his journeys? I can't wait to see this Moo guy. <laughs> this is not Moo. Come on, man. That's his name. Isn't that awesome? I think it is. Anyway, I digress. Let's continue on. The word teach, <laughs> and, and it's uh, now teaching and teacher are used in the New Testament mainly to denote the careful transmission of the traditions concerning Jesus Christ and the authoritative proclamation of God's will to believers in light of the tradition. Uh, commanded to teach these things. While the word can be used more broadly to describe the general ministry of edification that takes place in various ways through teaching, singing, praying, reading scripture, like in Colossians. The activity is usually designed to teach is plainly restricted to certain individuals that have the gift of teaching. So he starts to set some limiting factors here. 
Okay, not anybody can teach in the church. Did you know that? He says, it's, I, I, we talked about this before. I call it the warm body syndrome. Many times in churches, what we'll do is we'll just, it's like, they're breathing. They, get, they got a pulse. Their, their body's still warm. Chuck them in there. And then you get into trouble, don't you? Right? Well, I heard that, the, that they, they, they know how to count pennies. All right, they can be the church treasurer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? It, no. You, you, and, that's, and unfortunately, we do that. We do these knee-jerk reactions. It's, and unfortunately, when it's teaching, well, they got, the, they got a pulse. They can breathe. At least they're willing. Chuck them in there. And especially in the area of teaching, you better be careful. And Paul talks about, no, 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 no. First of all, nobody should be teaching unless you have the gift of teaching. Okay? I mean, beat your sharpest sticking knife if you're giving the world. But the ideal situation is make sure you got somebody, and ladies, you can have that. We'll get to that in a second. Doesn't mean you can't teach, okay, per se at all. We'll get to that. But make sure that you have that gift. Okay, so he puts that first limiting factor that you have to have the gift of teaching. This makes it clear that not all Christians are engaged in doctrinal instruction. As Paul's own life draws to a close, his, in response to false teaching, he's deeply concerned to ensure that sound, helpful teaching to be maintained in the churches. Why? Because I don't know if you've noticed that even before Paul died, uh, Satan went to his next tactic. He couldn't stop Jesus. Well, you know, he thought he was getting his greatest victory by Jesus going to the cross. Aha, the Messiah is gone. I won. No, you didn't. That was your greatest undoing. Ha, ha, ha. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo in Jesus' name. All right? All right? And then the church was born. You couldn't stop that, right? And so what's he do next? Now he starts flooding the church with false believers and false teachers, false prophets. Why? To pollute the church. So that when the church goes out, this is what we're seeing in, the, in Sunday school in the book of James uh, that I'm going through. Uh, that when the church goes out, now you're getting forth false doctrine, false teaching, and a false gospel, and a false concept of Christianity, right? So he, he immediately goes, and we already see instances in the New Testament letters that false teachers, guess what are some of the topics right out of the gates? He's having to deal with these false teachers. So Paul's towards the end of his life. And so he's like really wanting to make sure that we keep the church pure, especially the teaching, especially at the inception of Christianity, right? And so back again to this aspect, he goes back to the creation order. He says, listen, ladies, this is nothing sexist. Whatever. I'm going back to the biblical account with sexist, but guys are the ones who need to do this. And we don't need people coming in and that they're going to be thinking more emotionally and possibly going off the deep end because we want to keep this on the straight course. Because this is God's truth. This is the glorious gospel. We can't water this down and it can't be infected with false teaching, okay? So as it draws to a close, he's concerned about the sound, helpful teaching to be maintained in the church. And uh, one of Timothy, who is a guy, his main task is to teach. Why? Because he's a pastor. As we saw before, a pastor, elder, pastor that is teacher, Meaning that a pastor, if he is called to be a pastor, he has to have the gift of teaching. Why? Because you're called to feed and take care of this flock. And I'm sorry, you can do other ministries in the church, but if you don't have the gift of teaching, you should not be a pastor of teaching. The main, it's that simple, okay? And that's what he talks about. And to prepare others for this vital ministry, okay? While perhaps not restricted to the elder overseer, teaching in this sense is an important activity of these people. Now, so Paul in this instance was prohibiting women from any position or situation where she would be giving authoritative doctrinal instruction. When's that? That's your main like Sunday service or whatever that he's talking about when what I'm like doing. He says, don't do that. Or exercising over a group where there are men present. 
Okay, and we'll get to that in a second. I'll break that down. And he gives two reasons for this prohibition. Again, his theology has nothing to do with culture. His first reason, again, is the creation order. Is your first blank there. The Greek text, again, says, For Adam first was created, then Eve, and the emphasis is on the creation order, showing that God's creation order indicates functional distinction. In other words, guy's got his thing, ladies, you got your thing. It's not that he's better than you, or you're better than him, or his gifts, or what he gets to do is a lot easier than what, it's none of that. It's just one's a sinner, one's a quarterback, what's the big deal? Can we just both do what we're called to do, and it works great? That's all he's saying. Okay, Adam was created first and placed in the headship position. Thus, in the church, men are to lead. Top of page 175. A literal rendering of the following verse reads, And Adam was not deceived or misled, but the woman, having been completely deceived, has come to transgression and remained there. That's Paul's second reason for a woman not to teach or exercise authority over men in the local church. Although many commentators avert making a judgment on Paul's intention behind this second reason, the only conclusion can be drawn is that the woman, because of the way she was created for a role, is more easily deceived. And that's where I broke it down for you earlier. He's repeating himself. But now in the context of your role in the church, okay, uh, is because of that emotional makeup, okay? Uh, it can be a detriment when it comes to that kind of authoritative uh, doctrinal teaching, especially when you come across certain things that, listen, that is not necessarily, yay, right? Or as men in the church, did you know that sometimes you need to discipline in the church? We've talked about that before. And sometimes that means you need to confront, which means the, the situation can get heightened, and the last thing you want is the emotions to fly at that point. Okay? To either go overboard or to cave in from doing what you need to do. Okay? And so that's what he's talking about there. Now listen, he says, now that's that aspect. Now her emotional sensitivity, listen, and nurturing nature is a strength. Right? That's the jelly roll. It works great in what God's called you to do for her role as a mother and wife. But it could be a weakness, is the blank there. Weakness in doctrinal discernment. As we can see from this passage, the reasoning has nothing to do with culture. It's tied in with the creation account. And this makes the principle of women not teaching or exercising authority over men transcultural and fully applicable for when? Today. Thank you. Okay, and again, the world's bucking at it and the church is caving at it. Another passage that deals with this issue of women's role in the church is 1 Corinthians 11. We've already mentioned this passage as being where Paul stated the theological principle that it, the order of headship in the church is what? We saw this last week if we were here. The order is this. The man's not an island on his own. He's not out there just doing his own thing. Excuse me. He's under the headship of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Right? And that's why he says he's got Christ, then you got the man, then you got the whoa man, okay? And if he's getting out of line, ladies, don't push him out and take the lead. You go to God and begin to plead. God, get him, right? Help him, God. Give him that uh, you know, wisdom that he needs to be that godly leader. Be there, encourage him. That's what he's talking about. But that's what Paul says here. He says, listen, that's the headship in the church. Christ, the man, the woman. The context, again, is public worship service. Again, we'll get to that hopefully in a second. That doesn't mean that you can't teach and you can't serve. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the public worship service. Paul indicates that if a, in this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to explain this one because people get this one wrong all the time, unfortunately. He says this, he says, uh, uh, in the context of the public worship service, that if a woman prays or prophesies, okay, uh, which later, uh, uh, with her um, head uh, covered, the culturally accepted practice to show submission to her husband. Okay, in fact, let's go ahead and read that passage. Submission is your blank there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We got to grab this one real quick. 
And I uh, don't want to skip over this guy. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Because this one is a cultural thing. Okay, it's not like the other one. Well, that's cultural. We don't need to plot. No, that's from the creation account. This is a cultural practice, but because people don't do their homework and understand what Paul's talking about here, they try to bring this in as a mandate today and it has nothing to do with their conclusion. Okay, let's take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, and uh, let's take a look at what Paul says there. Uh, verse three, he says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is what? Christ. So he ain't alone, right? He's not a loose cannon on deck. God's watching over the guy and if he gets out of line, God will spank him. Now, and the head of the woman, though, is the what? The man. And the head of the Christ, of course, is God, the Father in that role. Every man who prays or prophesies, and he's talking about the public service, the public, like we'd say, the Sunday worship service. During that time, if every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. All right? And, uh, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. What? Well, apparently, according to the Bible, folks, right there, it says that men, when you come to a church service, you cannot wear any sort of headgear. And ladies, uh, you have to. It says it right there. Is that what's going on? No. Okay. Not at all. Uh, that was a Corinthian practice of the day. And what Paul is talking about with that Corinthian practice, it had everything to do with what we've been talking about for three weeks with the role of the woman. Submission. Okay, is what it, let me expand on that for you. Uh, Paul is not uh, stating a divine universal requirement. He's acknowledging a local custom. The local Christian custom reflected the divine principle of submission. In Corinthian society, a man's praying or prophesying without a head covering was a sign of his authority over women who were expected to have their heads covered in these ministries. Consequently, for a man to cover his head would be a disgrace because it suggested a reversal of the proper relationships. Okay? Now, we see this even still today in the Eastern cultures. Let me just bring up one group, which I'm not promoting, but just so you can get a visual, the Muslim community. The women still today have head coverings and veils as a sign of their submission to the men. And again, I'm not saying that all that they do and what they mean with it is biblical and appropriate, because it's not. But I'm just trying to give you a visual that the headgear is still, for as a sign of submission, is still in practice today. Right? And that's what Paul's talking about. That was what was going on at that time. Okay, it says in the many Near East countries today, a married woman's veil still signifies that she will not expose herself to other men, that her beauty and charms are reserved entirely for her husband, that she does not care even to be noticed by other men. And similarly, the first century uh, culture in Corinth, wearing head covering uh, while ministering or worshiping was a, listen, here's the whole point, was a, we don't do it today in America, but they did it back then was a woman's way of stating her devotion and submission to her husband and demonstrating her commitment to God. You get it? They just said that, listen, I am demonstrating in public worship that I am doing the biblical role with this head covering, that I am out of submission to God, I am submitting to my husband. I cover my head as a sign of that submission. He keeps his head uncovered because he's the authority over my head. You get it? 
That's what he's talking about. Let me break it down a little bit more. It seems, however, that some women, this is what's going on in the church, and it was causing a problem in the church in the Sunday, if you will, public service. Because that was the custom. That was what was expected. And he was taking a, 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 a cultural custom, and he was saying this is uh, uh, in alignment with a biblical truth of the headship. Christ, man, woman. Okay? But ladies were showing up and going against the custom that was a sign of the biblical truth, and it was causing a ruckus in the church. Listen to what they were doing. They were not covering their heads, okay, while praying or prophesying. And we know from secular history that various movements of women's liberation and feminism appeared in the Roman Empire during New Testament times. I got a book, it's uh, Jeremy Carcapino, uh, and he talks about the Roman culture during the New Testament times. Did you know that feminism is nothing new? Did you know with this whole women's rights movement is nothing new? They had to deal with that in the Roman culture, even in the New Testament. And this is what was happening, feminism in the church, in this passage. It's very applicable today if you do your homework, okay? He says this, women would often take off their veils or head coverings and they would cut their hair in order to look just like men. Much as in our own day, some women are demanding to be treated exactly like men and they attack marriage and the raising of children as unjust restrictions of the rights. They asserted their independence by leaving their husbands and homes, refusing to care for their children, living with other men, demanding jobs traditionally held by men, wearing men's clothing and having men's hairdos, and discarding all signs of femininity. It is likely that some of the believers in Corinth were influenced by those movements, dare I say, even feminism way back then, and as a sign of their protest and independence, they would show up to Sunday services and refuse to put the head covering on. Now do you get what's going on there? It has nothing to do with a hat. If it was just strictly a hat, that a guy can't come and wear a hat, then you have to be honest with the text, and then you have to force women to always wear a hat. You can't say the woman without the... I mean, it doesn't have anything to do with that. But if you're going to say, well, that passes me and a guy can't wear a hat. Right? Then you have to say, well, that means that women have to, every one of you women right here are being unbiblical. You have to wear a hat. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't mean that. It's not what's going on. Now, uh, in our culture today in America, uh, sometimes it is a respect issue. That is a cultural issue. I'm not saying come in here and, uh, you know, wearing a 10-gallon cowboy hat, you know. Uh, you might, that actually might be disruptive. I can't see the video. They're working this week. You know, <laughs> take it off. It was a, it's a good one. That guy was rolling down his window. I never got to see what it went. Get the video. I think we got it there. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, there is a certain element uh, that, that could be. But uh, let me just share with you one, oh, one quick story. Uh, and this was at the, the conference I went to earlier. A misapplication of that passage. Not only it's a great passage, it's applicable today with the influx of feminism with women that they had to deal with back then. And they're rejecting that headship and submission by refusing the headship. But if we get this thing wrong, we can mess everything up. And this was at the evangelism conference I went to uh, earlier this year. And uh, the new director, Kevin White, he shared this. And he talked about this. And uh, he, he's the one that brought the story. He says when he was pastoring, I forget which church it was. He said, uh, he said uh, there was this, uh, he noticed that as he was getting ready to uh, get to preach. And there was this uh, like young man, uh, early 20s, whatever, had come up and uh, had a, uh, his hat on. He just kind of sat in the back and just trying to be incognito. He's sitting there, whatever. And he's, he's starting to preach away. And then he noticed uh, one of the, the deacons had come up and uh, tapped the guy on the shoulder and basically, 
you know, had him remove his hat and whatever, and so he took his hat off, whatever. But he didn't really, you know, take kind to that, whatever. And so then he was stayed around. And he noticed he was preaching for about five more minutes, and then he left. Okay. After the service, the deacon came up and said, "Pastor, we took care of that guy for you," and uh, he was wearing a hat during services. Right? We took care of that guy. Right? Get this. I'm not making this up, man. He's the one told the story. First of all, that's not what that passage means. Okay. And uh, and again, I'm not saying that we can't come alongside and maybe instruct, but give some people some time, will you? Okay, hello. They're brand new. He said that guy left. He said he got a phone call the next day from this couple in the community and asked them if they could do a funeral for their son. So he goes and he meets with the couple and guess who shot themselves later that afternoon after he left the church service? Him. And he sat there with tears. And he said, I had to minister to that family knowing that that man, the la- apparently the last thing, he was a one last ditch effort to reach out to God. And he came to our church. And our church drove him away over a stupid hat. And he went and killed himself. And I had to do their funeral of their son knowing my church had a part to play in that. We missed the opportunity. Oh, and he was, when he was talking, he was like, and he used that as an illustration. Listen, we got to stop playing games, man. We got to get serious. We got to stop majoring on the minors and minoring in the majors. And we got to get back to sharing the gospel. People need Jesus Christ. Can we stop this baloney? Okay. But again, with that context, I had to share that story in the context because there's another side to it. It's not only a wonderful, applicable passage dealing with today. If you do your homework and bring it to today with the dangers of feminism that are affecting us today. And how, ladies, you can rebel. Maybe you don't have to wear a head covering, but you rebel by other areas that you refuse to submit. Okay? Very applicable today. But if you get it wrong, you can get a bad uh, witness going on and detrimental effects. Let's continue on. He talks about this. Uh, boy, all the churches and the saints, let the women keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak, he says, but let them be subject themselves just as the law also says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. It's improper for a woman to speak in church. Okay, so they can't say a word. That's not what's going on. Let's explore. He's talking about the prohibition against women speaking in the church assembly. Again, based on the law, this is the creation account he talks about. He's talking about, listen, against women being involved in the oral discussion of the meaning and the application of the prophecies received in the worship service. Can I break that down for you? What he's talking about, ladies, you may not have, and we may not have here right now in America, in Las Vegas, the cultural custom that would demonstrate your submission to the biblical authority with Christ, man, and the woman, okay? And that, that you would say, well, I'm going to be a feminist in the church and rip the head covered off, ha-ha, or shave my head, which, by the way, the prostitutes did back in those days as well, and that was another issue, okay? And that we don't do that. But what he's saying here is it would also be wrong if ladies, if you said, aha, and he's talking about the oral discussion, the meaning and application. I know better than you. You men don't know what you're talking about. I know how to apply the scripture. And this is during the public service. Don't do that. Zip your mouth. That's out of order. You need to submit to your own head in the home. And if you truly have a discussion of the doctrine, you don't sit there and toot your own horn and play the role of a feminist yourself and usurp the authority in the church publicly. If you got a question, if it's legit, do it the proper way. You don't challenge the authority in the church in a public fashion like that. That's what he's talking about there. Okay? You need to go to your own husband. You need to ask him and work it out. Okay? That's what he's talking about in this passage here. Paul makes it clear that the woman is certainly allowed to be learning, is your blank there, 
But if she has a question about what's being discussed, she should ask her husband. Why? Because he's the head. Follow the order. He's being the spiritual leader. He is responsible, as your next blank, for gaining and understanding Scripture and making sure that his wife, as well as his children, are spiritually nourished. This maintains the submission and headship, top of page 176, in the family called for in Scripture. The passage uh, does not, listen, prevent a woman from giving her testimony, offering the Scripture reading, making announcements, leading songs, offering a public prayer, since none of those violate Paul's uh, prohibition. What he's, what he's talking about is you are not to sit there and usurp the authority in the church, in the public setting, and sit there, you know best, and these men are stupid, and here's what it means, and that's not what the Hush your mouth. You're out of order. You're out of God's order. Okay? You need to do it God's way. And here's the, here's the last thing real quick. Although it's obvious in Scripture, uh, Scripture's put prohibitions on women in the church in some position. Hello, here's the balancing point. Uh, there's all kinds of ministry in the local church. Okay? Women uh, uh, who teach, because you can teach, hello, uh, in, 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 conform, uh, in confirmation to the Scriptures, are under the same, number one, divine scrutiny and ultimate authority and accountability as are the men. In other words, if you need to have, the, if you are going to teach in certain areas, then you need to also have the gift of teaching as well. And you also need to be, like he says down here in 1 Timothy 3, 11, for the role of the women, uh, he says you need to be respectable. You need to be not gossips. You need to be not slanders, not malicious talkers, okay? You need to be a woman who's also worthy of respect uh, to yield even that. He says the spiritual qualifications, is your blank there, qualifications of a woman in a leadership position such as a children's church director, Sunday school teacher, Ruth, act, that's right, should be as high as those for men. Since the positions they need to exhibit responsibility as well as teach through the word and deed, uh, they're to be an example of mature Christian womanhood for those whom they teach, okay? And, uh, and again, you need to follow those uh, uh, qualifications just like with the guys in that aspect. Uh, and it says that the, probably the best way to lay down some guidelines, okay, is your next blank there, uh, in light of that poem, some guidelines for when boys become men. Now this is important, pay attention. This is very pertinent to the Sunday school in the local church. Ideally, at the age of 12 to 14, boys are reaching puberty and becoming young men. Since the best way to become a godly man is to pattern your life after a godly woman. Notice the difference there. Is a godly man. It is preferable at this age for young men to start to make the transition and receive most of their spiritual instruction from who? Godly mature men. Because we saw, what's the biblical example? Older women need to instruct the younger women. Older men need to instruct the younger men. Why? I think it's common sense. Have you learned this one yet? Your kids will get up to a certain age and then it starts to go like this. Dad needs to start having discussions with the boy. Mom needs to have discussions with the girl, especially when this puberty thing hits. Not that dad couldn't, but it's just guys speak, guys speak. Ladies, you have your own speak. And when it comes to certain issues, it's better, it's more appropriate. Guys could do it, and vice versa, you could beat a sharp stick in the eye. At least there's communication. But the best possible scenario is you get to that certain point, and then if you want to teach them to be godly, start following that biblical mandate. Godly men, start instructing godly boys, because that's how they're going to become godly men. Because they're not only going to just, it's not just receiving instruction from you, they're seeing it lived out in you. And they're seeing you model and teach, yes, but model a godly man. That helps them to be the godly man. And it's the same thing with the ladies. They're seeing you as a godly woman begin to not just teach, but to model 
that godly woman. Makes sense, doesn't it? When you do it God's way. And that's what he's talking about. Some argue for an earlier age. If it's possible, it's preferable. If several ages of classes have been combined because of a lack of committed qualified men, then so be it. Crone translation beats a sharp stick in the eye. But we need to remember there are hundreds of thousands of boys who will be uh, coming to our Sunday school programs who have no idea, no example of what a godly man should be. It's important that they are able to see godly manhood modeled in the spiritual training which they receive through the Sunday school. Can I add this? Because I think this is what's another missing element in the church. We also need to see godly women teach the younger ladies because ladies you're so infected i don't mean it's in a detrimental sense guys got our own problems too but you're infected with this feminist ideas growing up and it's going to help to it's going to take godly women in the church who are not to help lead you in that biblical fashion listen god's way is the path to freedom society's methodologies and the brainwashing we're receiving from the secular media and the secular education and from our own peer group is the pathway to bondage. And it's going to take godly men and godly women and that's the key as us adults. Are we truly divested of the ungodly ideals of what does it mean to be a godly woman and a godly man as well. Let's close out with this. He says, okay, so what's some other areas? Listen, there's tons of things. Teaching women, small groups, large uh, groups, conferences, teaching children, boys up until puberty, writing, authoring Bible study materials, especially for women and children, personal evangelism, discipleship, especially among women, visitation to the sick, counseling women, children, children's church director, children's ministry director, church secretary, church treasurer, assisting the deacons in benevolence ministry, youth co-director, uh, since she's working together as a team with her husband as the headship, and in other areas, of mission and above all would apply. And again, that's not everything, but that lets you know it doesn't mean what feminism says or you can't do nothing. That's not at all what's going on. This is only a partial listing in each church or mission situation. The elders should examine the job profile in light of the biblical injunction and be convicted that the principle of woman not teaching or exercising authority over man is not being violated. Can I translate that for you? That we are making sure very carefully with scrutiny in love we are doing it God's way. Why? Because God's way is the best way and if we want to make a difference in our own church and our own community and, and to turn things around, at least be that example Okay, we got to get back to doing it God's way. Like it, lump it, leave it. If it's popular, who gives a rip? We have to be so convinced that God knows what he's doing and his way is the way out of this mess. Amen? Lord willing, next time, the role of the child. Yeah, duh, uh, uh, and then... I can smell it. What do you smell, Bobby? Apologetics. Apologetics, that's right. Coming down the pipe. That's right. Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple of things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not... How can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. 
And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even his name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step, to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place, so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused 
to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what He was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.